Oh, what a, it's a great Sunday thus far. We get to send here and, uh, it would be a full meal, but, um, really the height of the worship service is when the Word of God is preached. When the Bible is opened and we hear, um, not the opinions, the whims, the thoughts of a man, but we are given the oracles of God, the revelation, the apocalypse, the, the will of God revealed to us through the scriptures. And so as we draw near, let's uh, open our hearts to this, to this truth. Let's uh, look to Him. Let's not just be here physically, but let's apply our faith to what we're hearing. That God might meet us. God might be with us right now, knowing our hearts and meet our needs. Well, before we start, I'm going to make some qualifying statements. I'm going to share a few things um, with a few following facts and kind of a weird way to start, but I feel pressed to, to do this. I feel I need to do this. Um, I've been lifting weights for a few years now, and uh, I can safely say I can bench press my weight with with fair ability. I, I, I haven't maxed out yet, but I think a bench press 225 uh, without a problem. Uh, a month ago, I back squatted uh, 225, 25 pounds, three sets, eight times. So hopefully by the end of the year, I'll have uh, six plates on my on the bar, so 315 pounds, and set a max out. I say all of that so that I can give evidences of my masculinity on the front end, <laughs> because it's going to take a hit when I share what I'm about to share. Okay? That's how secure I am. I shared this before, I don't know if I, I'm not sure if I did, but um, I was working in my mom's store years ago, and I used to work on Mondays, 2 to 9 p.m. And guys, what comes on at 3 p.m. on Channel 7? See, you guys know too, right? <laughs> So I didn't, you know, I don't, you know, the channel was on at 7. I didn't turn it there. And Oprah just came on. And uh, I don't go out of my way to watch Oprah. I really don't. But if it's on, and if it's not about some weird health issue or about dieting, I'll watch it. Right? I'll give it a chance. So I'm watching this Oprah episode. And the beginning of the episode is the greatest love story ever shared in all her uh, uh network years. And all of broadcasting is the greatest story she's ever told. It's about a man named Herman Rosenblatt. He was uh, a Jew in Europe, in Poland. When he was 12 years old, he was uh, taken to the concentration camps with three older brothers. And he was given the job of removing bodies from the crematorium, uh, the leftover remains. And he spent several years of his life there after several months in the concentration camp, he was miserable. Any, any day could have been his last. He tells a story how one day he was by the fence and there was another girl on the women's side of the concentration camp and they were better cared for. She looked to him and asked him how he was doing and he cried because he was hungry. And she threw over an apple and asked him to eat. He he turned back and he cried and he was so thankful. And for seven months every day, they met every, every day in the concentration camp at the back of the crematorium. 
and she gave him food for him to eat. After the seven months, seven, seven months, one day, he uh, told her that they're being shipped out. This would be the last day he will ever meet her. So she threw him her final apple, and she said, I'm going to miss you. They both cried and to uh, go their separate ways. Uh, the concentration camp that he was in was liberated by the Russian troops. Uh, years later, like 15 years later, he ended up in New York uh, working there. And a friend of his set him up with on a blind date with a girl from Europe as well. Her name was Roma Ratsika. He said she was immediately drawn to her. They began to talk about their lives and she asked Herman where he was during World War II. He said, I was in a concentration camp. And then she said, you know, I came to a camp and I met a boy there and I gave him some apples and I sent him over the fence every day. Suddenly it hit him like a ton of bricks. I said to her, there was a boy? Was he tall? And she said, yes. And one day he told you not to come around anymore because he was leaving? And she said, yes. And he replied, that boy was me. Roma and her family survived the concentration camp and she ended up in New York and she met that same boy on their first blind date. He told in front of the national wide audience, I, what, what can I tell you? I proposed right there and there that night. I said, look, I'll never let you go anymore. Now that we're free, we're going to be together forever. 1996, on the Oprah show stage, German and Roma gave Oprah a moment she'll never forget. And they panned to Oprah, and she was a mess. <laughs> she was crying. The audience was crying. And I was uh, doing this, you know. <laughs> <laughs> 225, you know. <laughs> James, her customer's here. What a great story, love story. This past year, they're going to publish a book, An Angel at the Fence. A book was coming out, a memoir. And then Hollywood got a hold of this story. They're going to make a movie. And then reporters started asking questions. There were holes in their story. There were inconsistencies in their story. Historical facts contradicted their testimonies. And then... One by one, their family members came out and confessed that the story wasn't true, that this never happened. In fact, the three older, oldest brothers who were with him in the concentration camp refuted this. The oldest brother in his deathbed was filled with anger, would not forgive him, because he said he was the one who took care of him. And they vowed, because he was the youngest, Henry was the youngest, that if anything happened to him, that they would all die together. And for him to fabricate the story was so hurtful to him that he would not forgive him on his deathbed. Uh, when this story came out, um, Henry Rosenblatt finally confessed to his agent uh, that he had fabricated the love story. His wife went along with it. And uh, they now confessed it was all a lie. Um, this had happened before to Oprah Winfrey. Remember James Fry? A Million Little Pieces, this memoir, and this story about a drug addict and his recovery. 
and sold 3.5 million books. And then as they, do, they, didn't, they investigate the story, it turned out it was a fictional story. He had actually wrote this story as a fictional book and tried to sell it to uh, many uh, publishers, and they wouldn't accept it. And then when he said it was, it's not a fictional story, it's his personal non-fiction story, it got picked up and became a, a bestseller. Um, he was exposed as a fraud. You know, the Hollywood agent who was producing this movie, he said, it doesn't, true. It doesn't matter if it's not true or not. It doesn't matter. Right? It's a beautiful story. It doesn't matter if it's true or not. No. Oprah was so indignant. She had James Fry come. I don't know if you heard about this. Had him uh, apologize for a public uh, before in her show. There was a huge outcry against James Fry and now Henry Rosenblatt with his family and everyone who believed in, sto- in the story. And I got to admit, I got upset as well. Right? I don't think I'm a gullible guy, but I saw this. I think I've told people this. I might have used it in a sermon. And uh, <laughs> it's not true. It does matter. There are two tests for any any uh, truth claim. Two tests. Any worldview, any philosophy, any truth claim. Uh, is it intellectually credible? And is it existentially satisfying? Right. Is it true? Is it factual? Is it is it uh, is it the truth? But not only that, is it relevant? In our existence, does it matter? Is it beautiful? Does it give us joy, delight, and satisfaction? It has to be both. For me, that's why um, math was so hard in high school. Still was hard. Like algebra was true, but it was not existentially satisfying to me. <laughs> I'm sorry that you're a math teacher. I'm sorry, brother, but uh, high school, I got four A's and a D, right? And a D was algebra. I mean, what's the point? I don't even care if it's true. I don't, I don't care what X is. I don't care what Y is. There is no relevance. For us to live by something, it has to be true and beautiful. According to the Bible, this is the claim that the gospel makes. That the gospel is not only true, but it is beautiful. Not only is it based on historical events, irrefutable, but it is relevant to us. It is sweet. It is powerful. It is the most important message to each of us. According to the Bible, there are just three worldviews, three ways to live. Three ways in which all of us seek happiness in this world. The first way is the irreligious way. It's living for self. Living for sin. Proverbs thirteen fifteen. But the way of the sinner, the way of the treacherous is hard. Yes, many people choose this road, but it's a pain-filled road. It's not a beautiful road. It's a road filled with disappointment, heartache, suffering, sorrow, and trials. It is a road of uh, alcoholism, temporary suicide, because reality is so horrible. It's a road to drug addiction or gambling because you want to run away from reality of existence. It is a road of externally uh, pretending you're happy, but you're 
pretending because there is uh, trauma in the soul at the deepest level. Uh, I discovered this when I watched Zorba the Greek years ago. Right? Zorba the Greek, this guy, the Greek guy, and uh, he's, he's dancing, and he, him and his friend are dancing the night away, getting drunk, and uh, he, he was telling his friend why he, he danced so much. He said, pain is like a predator that stalks us in the night. Once it gets a hold of us, it rips us to shreds like a shrapnel. It makes way through our bodies, storing itself in our emotions and memory, attaching itself to our ability to feel vibrant again. And he tells his friend the first time he danced was at the funeral of his son, Dimitri. When his son was three years old, he died. And at the funeral, he danced because that was the only way to have the pain go away. The pain was so real and raw, he thought he was going to go insane. So he began to dance, and he can't stop dancing because as soon as he stops dancing, pain rushes back into his soul, and it's overwhelming. He can't, can't contain it. The irreligious live for themselves, and yet when they reach the top rung of that ladder, they realize life is empty, purposeless, meaningless. It is hollow. All that remains is heartache. So it's not satisfying. Not only is it not true, but incidentally, it is not satisfying. This way of living, disavowing, not acknowledging God and His truth and the gospel. The second way is a way of the religious way, where you compensate uh, from this meaningless life by obeying a set of commands, rules, regulations, and rituals. You accept some code of, of life, some uh, code of ethics, of morality, and you believe, if I obey these in perfection, then I will be happy. All religions are united in this. They espouse that you obey our commands, then you will be happy. It is true. You have eternity with God. And what all the religious find out is that if you obey these commands, in some measure, what results is pride, dogmatism, self-righteousness, a judgmental attitude, and anger because life isn't fair. Right? Here you are obeying God's commands. And here is this religious guy. And he gets bailed out by the government. I don't know, right? Or he gets, you know, he wins the lottery. Or his children get into good schools. Or he is healthy or she is healthy and you have physical problems. You get, you feel anger and, and frustration because of the unfairness of life. The religious life leads to either self-righteousness, pride, or leads to despair because no one can live according to these commands. These rules, regulations, and rituals, we're all sinners, we all fall short. And so when we all fall and violate our own consciences, our own standards of, of ethics and morality, we look into ourselves and we fear, feel despair and self-condemnation and anger at God and anger at the world, anger itself. So the religious road is a, is a dead end as well. Not true. 
And it's not satisfying. I, I, you can see through them clearly. It's like the king's new clothes. He has no clothes. He's naked. The, the religious people, they surround themselves with all these rituals and music and architecture and stained glass windows and chant and, and clothing and garb and, and, and hats. And we see right through that. That is a dead end. It's not true. There's no true joy there. The third way is the gospel way. What Christ came for. It is the message of Jesus Christ. It is the good news. Not good counsel. Not good advice. Not good threats. He's not giving us fear. He's not manipulating us. He's not trying to coerce us or threaten us. He's giving us a beautiful declaration of what He has done. Once for all. This story of Christ and the forgiveness, redemption, freedom, reconciliation, salvation, and eternal glory that belongs to all those who believe in Him is not only uh, existentially beautiful. I mean, not only does it satisfy the soul, you trust this message in your hearts where it's no longer restless, no longer striving. There's no, there's no more dread or fear of God's wrath or condemnation. Your hearts are at rest. Not only does it delight us at the core of our being, but it's intellectually credible. It's verifiable. It's based on history. It's not fable or myth or legend. It's not the product of an imagine, of a man's imaginations. No, it is based, rooted on history. On, on, on events that are, are verifiable, and so it meets us and our intellect as well. To that end, let's go to our text this morning, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 11. 1 Corinthians 3, 15, 3 through 11. For I deliver to you as of first importance. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried, that He was raised in the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas, who was Peter, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James and to all the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born. He also appeared to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I. But the grace of God that is with me, or then it was I or they, so we preach. And so you believe. I want you to turn your focus to the last clause of verse 3. This is the message that is of first importance. That Christ 
died for our sins. We need to begin with that last word, sins, our sins. Before we can receive good news, we must hear the bad news. And the bad news is that we are sinners. And what's worse is that we're not sinners because we sin. The Bible tells us we sin because we're sinners. We were born in our sins. Sinfulness is within us. It is inherent in our nature. We just went to a retreat, um, Lighthouse Bible Church's singles retreat. And you know how singles are. They don't have kids. They love kids. We, you know, when they asked us to come, we said yes right away. Right? 80 singles. We have four kids. They'll take care of our kids. And my wife and I can nap. You know? <laughs> we can get some rest. And they were saying, oh, your kids are so cute, you know, they're so adorable. And my, my blink response was, uh, not internally, <laughs> not in their hearts. It's, it's all a facade. It's all, you know, like, it's all that Photoshop, right? <laughs> it's not real. Like, internally, man, they're like, they're sinners. I mean, our, our daughter, Eleanor, you guys think, wow, she's so, like, she's a year and a half old, and she has such anger in her heart. If she was 200 pounds, like, she will, you know, body slam me. I mean, she doesn't get what she wants. She starts shuffling her arms all over, and there's an incredible Hulk slash Jurassic, Jurassic Park rage in her heart. Right? So it just seems, it's that cuteness, it's like, it's like external, it's, it's, a, it's a facade, and they're in their centers, and, and that humbles my wife and I, why? Because who, who birthed these kids? It's us! Right? Like, we, we're trying to be righteous, I'm a pastor, pastor's wife, and we have children, and they come out as sinners. What does that tell everyone? That I'm a sinner, and my wife's a sinner. But it's okay because you're all sinners too. And there's nothing we can do externally about our, our internal spiritual sinfulness. It goes to the core of our being. Therefore, when we have children, right, we will replicate. Light replicates light. We will replicate what's who we are. And what we reproduce are sinners. Right? That's what David said, Psalm 51.5. You know, when Nathan rebuked him of his sin, adultery of Bathsheba, and murder of her husband Uriah, and he said, you know what? It wasn't because, you know, I just had a bad, bad day. You know, being a king is not easy. Right? Pressure, these Philistines, you know, Malachites, you know, all these ites, right? They're, they're coming after me, so. Like, it's a tough day, so I just, you know, moment of weakness, I gave in and I murdered Uriah. Who can fault me? No, that's not what he said. He said, you know what? This sinfulness, I was born with it. Psalm 51, 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. It wasn't just that day or week from my conception. Sin was in my heart. That's why Psalm 51.10, he says, Created me a clean heart. God, you got to give me a new heart. Because his old heart is full of sin. The religious seek to uh, cover up their sinfulness. And they seek to compensate for their sinfulness by external good deeds. Uh, and so they're all about like rituals and all these things you have to do. 
rightly to be viewed as righteous before before others. In Mark 7, the Pharisees were all up in arms. Here is Jesus and the disciples healing the sick, right, giving sight to the blind, healing to the deaf, the paralyzed are walking, the dead are being raised from the, the dead grave, and they're all fuming. Why? Because they're not washing their hands according to the tradition of the elders. Right? Before they eat, they should pray and wash so that they'll be ritually undefiled. And they're not doing that. So they're all getting angry at Jesus. And Jesus said, oh man, you Pharisees, understand this. That what goes in your mouth doesn't defile you. Right? What defiles you is what's in your heart and what comes out of your heart. And he said... Mark 7, 21, from, from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things aren't out there coming in. You can't blame Hollywood. You can't blame your parents. You can't blame your friends. you got to blame yourself. They come from within and they defile a person. They defile a person. That's, that's the state of all of us. Isaiah 53, 6, all we, like have, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And that's the bad news, but here's the good news. Here's the beautiful news. And the Lord has laid on him our iniquity, all our transgressions, all our sins. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus died for our sins. This is the central tenet of the Christian faith. Jesus died for my sins and your sins. To those who believe, he became our substitute. We deserve to die for our sins. Remember, Christ was crucified with two robbers, and one robber who mocked him was mocking him, save us, and while you're at it, save us, save you, and save us, save us as well. And the other thief was saying, we deserve this, what are you talking about? We deserve this punishment, we deserve to be treated this way, we deserve to die on the cross because we have committed such treacherous sins. It is right, it is just that we are punished in this way. But the gospel is a gospel of free grace. That Jesus died on our behalf. Though he lived the perfect life, he was morally perfect, righteous, without sin. He had right motivation, right life, right right love, right behavior. Yet he was falsely accused, he was tortured, he he suffered on the cross. He voluntarily died on the cross to pay our penalty, to receive our condemnation, so that we might receive the forgiveness of all our sins. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. The Jews understood the Passover lamb as a substitute and Paul is saying, Christ is our Passover lamb. He is slaughtered. His blood is shed so that we might be adopted into God's family. 
All that's required of us is to just believe, to trust, to have faith. John 3:16 and 17. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever will believe in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son to condemn this world. He did not come to condemn us, but to save us in order that we might be saved through Him. While we were helpless in our sins, God sent His only Son that He might save us, ransom us, set us free, and forgive us of all our sins. How is this possible? How can this happen? It's not by religion. It's not by doing good works. It's not by X, Y, Z. It's by faith alone. You know, the context of John 3.16 is uh, the previous passage. Our Lord quotes uh, an Old Testament uh, miraculous event. In Numbers 20, don't, don't turn there. Numbers 21, you can read it this week. Uh, in Numbers 21, uh, the Israelites are going to the desert. And they're complaining, they're whining, they're grumbling, they're angry at God, angry at Moses, angry at everything because they're suffering and they're hungry. So what does God do? God sends fiery servants, serpents, uh, poisonous serpents to the Israelite camp and, and you're bitten and you die. God has compassion on them. So he tells Moses, on your staff, uh, put a bronze serpent and everyone who lifted high up, and everyone who looks at this bronze serpent will live. Will live. And that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus said. He said, I'll be lifted up, and everyone who looks to me will be saved. I got this illustration from Elsie Fitzpatrick in her book, Because He Loves Me. Everybody look here. Okay, for a moment, look towards me, and I want you to do something. I want you to look away, fasten your eyes on something else. Okay, fasten your eyes on something else, anything but me. Keep looking, keep looking, focus on that object, now look back. That's all God requires of you. To look away from yourself. To look away from your own sins. Right? To have the desire to look away and to look to Christ. Here are these Israelites. Poison is streaming through their veins. They're going to die. They're panicking. They're afraid. And Moses says, look to this bronze serpent that's lifted up. You look. God promises He will save you. And some Israelites believed what God said. Instead of trying to figure out how to save themselves, they stopped and paused. And they looked at God's provision for their help. And they were healed. Those who did not look, they tried to heal themselves. They tried to do something to wash away their, this, this poisonous bite. Their bodies were strewn across the desert. They died in their sins. That's what faith is. A looking away from yourself to Christ. Looking to the cross where He died for our sins. A.W. Tozer said, Faith is the gaze of the soul upon a saving God. Faith is the least self-regarding of the virtues. 
It is by its nature scarcely conscious of its own existence. Like the eye which sees everything in front of it and never sees itself, faith is occupied with the object upon which it rests and pays no attention to itself at all. To look upon Christ is to fix your eyes on Christ and hope in it alone. He also said, stop tinkering with your soul. Stop trying to save yourself. Look away to the perfect one. That's the gospel. If you would just trust in him, believe in him, we have all his benefits. How does this happen? It is by grace. Through through faith alone, by grace alone, we are saved. Someone said grace is an acronym for God's riches at Christ's expense. We get all the riches of God, God's riches at Christ's expense. We have done nothing. He does it all. By trusting in Him, we are imputed. We are credited. We are given Christ's righteousness. Um, uh, John Bunyan wrote that book, Pilgrim's Progress, and later on in that journey, the, the pilgrims come upon a mirror, uh, a, two, a two-way mirror. When you look on this side, you see yourself. You see yourself, all your blemishes, all your blackheads, all your pimples, all your scars, wrinkles. You see all your sins. But on this side, you look at someone, and you only see Christ. You only see Christ. You don't see that person. That's the picture of uh, how God sees us through the gospel, through the cross. By faith, we are placed inside Christ. Therefore, if any man, if it was in Christ, the new creation. All this passed away, behold, he was come. I've been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So anyone who is in Christ with the gospel, God sees us, the news gets better. He doesn't see us. He only sees the righteousness of Christ. We get all the riches of God's grace. All the treasures. Uh, Elise Fitzpatrick, let me quote her, Because God has by grace imputed our Lord's perfect obedience to you, if to those who believe in Him, when God looks upon you, He sees you as a person who did everything Jesus did. Now listen. Those who are crucified in Christ, who believe in Christ. He sees you as a person who always does the things that pleases Him. Who is so focused on accomplishing God's will that your daily food is to work for Him. Who doesn't seek your own will, but only seeks God's will. He sees you as someone who doesn't seek to receive glory, praise, respect, or worship from others. He sees you as someone who has kept all His commands. He sees you as someone who lives in such a way that your life brings holiness to others. Who loves others and lays down your life on a constant basis. Lives in such a way that the people around you know that you love your Heavenly Father more than anything else. He sees you as someone who seeks to obey every command that righteousness will be fulfilled. These are the things that Jesus did perfectly. And so, 
for those who believe in Christ. Not the religious, not the irreligious, for the, the gospel, to all those who believe in Christ, to the gospel. Not only all our sins gone, He has given us all of His Son's righteousness. So He sees us through that mirror. And He sees His Son. We are clothed with the righteous guard of Christ. How amazing is that? How beautiful, how sweet, how liberating, how wonderful. I mean, come on, everyone here, no matter your background, no matter your current, the state of your heart, you've got to say, and that story is beautiful. That, that warms my heart. That's, that's amazing. That's, that's, that's amazing grace. That God knows my helpless state. God knows that I'm a sinner through and through. And He had compassion on me. So He sent His Son as a provision for salvation that I might find happiness in Him. And all that's required of me is not religious works, but to trust in Him by grace. And through that grace alone, He sees me as His perfect Son who always pleases Him. And I'm adopted into his family. I mean, everyone here was got to say, that's beautiful. But you might wonder, is it credible? Is it true? Uh, it meets the first test. It's existentially beautiful, satisfying. But is it intellectually credible? Well, here is Paul's argument. Christ died for our sin. But look at the evidence. In accordance with the scriptures, verse 3, fulfilled prophecy. God predicted it. One of the greatest arguments for the existence of God and the credibility of the Old and New Testament is that the Jewish people are still here. God promised Abraham in Genesis 12. Right? Your seed will never die out. As there are many pebbles in the sand of the desert and, and, and the stars in the sky, so will your progenitors be. God promised Abraham, here we are, 2009, and all the ites are gone, right? All these civilizations have vanished from the earth. All we have are, are, are artifacts, right? They're, they're buildings, they're pottery, right? Maybe few of their documents, and Jewish people are everywhere, right? right? They're, they're, they're still here, the state of Israel is still here, they're still waging war over that land, as Promised by the scripture. And Christ's death was promised in the Old Testament. Genesis 3.15, the proto-gospel, the first evangelion, the first gospel. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, God promised the gospel. Out of your seed, right? Satan will strike his heel, but he will crush Satan's head. Out of, out of Eve's seed will come your Messiah. Isaiah, uh, Psalm 22 written by King David, a thousand years before Christ's uh, birth and, and death. Execution by the cross wasn't even invented. And Psalm 22 says, Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers circle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count on my bones. My bones are not broken. They divide my garments among them. They cast lots for my clothing. A thousand years before the death of Christ. Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions. 700 years before Christ was born. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was oppressed, afflicted, gazing open his mouth like a lamb that is left to slaughter, 
And like a sheep that before a shear is silent, he opened not his mouth. He made his grave with the wicked, with the rich man in his death. Though he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will, verse 10, Isaiah 53, to crush him. In accordance to the scriptures, Christ died. Not only that, he was raised, verse 4, in accordance with the scriptures. We're not just making up as we go, right? We're not just, you know, embellishing the story. This was promised in the Old Testament. And all this is a fulfillment of a specific, detailed prophecy. Psalm 16.10 You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, to death. You will not let the Holy One see corruption. Talking about the Messiah. Christ Himself prophesied His own death and resurrection. Matthew 16.21 He has told His disciples He must go to Jerusalem suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and be killed and the third day he will be raised. What was Peter's response? An understandable response. Reasonable. Peter took him aside and started to rebuke Jesus. Come on, Jesus, have some self-esteem. Right? Believe in yourself. Right? You kind of, you're going to cower. I don't like the sight of you. Right? Come on. You don't believe. You know, I could do all things in him who strengthens me. What happened to that wasn't written yet, but he might, he might have quoted that. Believe. And what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. You have things, the interests of man, not the interests of God. He, he predicted his own death and his own resurrection. And not only that, there are eyewitness accounts. 1 Corinthians 15 was written 30, 35 years after the death of Christ. But Paul is saying, verse 5, he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Some of them are still alive. You can go ask them. Primary eyewitnesses, primary eyewitness testimony. There hasn't been enough time for fables and mythology to legend to develop. It takes a generation to at least die and pass away for you to make up stories about someone. No, there are still people who are alive right now who saw the risen Lord. You can go ask them. They can verify. Right? Irrefutable and contributable evidence that he, he rose from the grave. You know what? He convinced the people closest to him that he was God. Right? The closest to him. I mean, Jim Carrey said this, behind every great man is a wife rolling her eyes, right? Behind every great man is a woman behind him rolling her eyes because, you know, I might look real, real good on Sundays when my wife sees me every day of the week and she knows me, right? There's a book, Gandhi, Nobody Knew, right? Gandhi looks good in that movie, three-hour movie that was produced by the Tourism Board of India, Right? <laughs> Who produced that movie? The Tourism Board of India. So he looks great, but it's gone nobody. You should read that book by Schaefer. Right? You should read a, a real biography of MLK. Right? I've been to the mountaintop. Right? That speech. At one point in my life, I had memorized that speech. I had a poster of him in my room when I was in college. But Luther, I mean, Martin Luther King's real life uh, is far short, far short of anyone, uh, any close to Christ. The people closest to Christ, his own mom, his half-brothers, people who knew him intimately, they said, my Lord, my God. 
they bowed down and worshipped him. And if the last people on earth who would believe that a human being would be God is first century Jews. Right? I mean, even now, but then, then they, were, they were intense about their Judaism. They were intense about their monotheism. Everybody was polytheistic. They died for their monotheistic belief. Right? The Western world, the Greeks and Romans, oh, God, become humans all the time. They get involved in our affairs. They go back to being God. Oh, the Eastern mindset, your life force, your spirit. Oh, your God is everywhere, everyone. The Jews believe God is one. And yet these first century Jews, they, they saw Christ, they heard Christ, they saw His miracles, they saw His death, and they saw Him risen, and they confessed, my Lord and my... Remember Thomas? I'm not gonna, you guys are crazy. I'm not going to believe Him. Right? This is intellectually not credible. I'm not going to go by your word. Right? There's some mass hysteria going on here. Unless I can touch the piercings in his side and his hands, I'm not going to believe. And Jesus comes to him. Thomas, come here. And Thomas responds, my Lord and my God. Again, this was written 20, 25 years after the resurrection. Witnesses were still alive. And Paul says, go and talk to them. But the greatest command. Oh, evidence is the transformed lives of the apostles. Right? He talks about himself, but we know that these apostles, they all died for their faith. They were cowards. Remember Peter denying the Lord to a servant girl? Right? These aren't soldiers. These aren't like political leaders. They're fishermen. And they're common people. Right? So when they were intimidated by the religious leaders of Israel, they all cowered and feared and ran in fear. Remember Mark? He ran away naked. Somebody grabbed his clothes and he ran away. Right? Naked? That's who they were. After the resurrection, they meet the risen Lord. And what happened? Right? James was martyred by Herod. He was beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. Would not renounce his faith. Andrew was crucified as well. Thomas was slain with, with arrows. Apostle Paul was beheaded by uh, Nero. Only, only one who wasn't martyred was the Apostle John. He died in exile in, I don't know, Patmos in AD 95. The church history tells us that he was thrown into a cauldron of oil and 90% of his body was burned. He suffered for the, the faith of Christ. Something happened. Something incredible. And they didn't kill people who didn't believe. They didn't set up religion or legalistic rules. For people to follow? No, they went and preached the gospel of free grace. Their lives were transformed. And that's why Paul said, By the grace of God, I am what I am. I worked harder than all, but it's not I, the grace of God. He says, I was a persecutor of God's church. I wasn't out there trying to get converted. In fact, I just murdered Stephen. I was out there to arrest Christians and murder them. And God saved me. God transformed me. And it is the power of the grace of God that is at work in my life. Evidence of Christ's resurrection. And that continues to this day. And my, my life is transformed. I mean, I, I lived a very uh, irreligious life. High school and college. 
Uh, you know, I attempted suicide three times. I mean, you know, people say, like, I talked to someone and they attempted suicide by taking uh, caffeine pills. And I was like, that, you know, you don't, you, that's not attempting suicide. That's just a cry for help, right? That's not what I was doing. I hated life. I wanted to die, right? It just, by grace of God, it just didn't happen. Right? My life has been transformed. Not because I'm a good person, but because my sins have driven me to Christ. And I received God's grace. You see, Jesse, right? you can't get much more different from me than Jesse. Right? <laughs> Martin Louis Jones said that's one of the greatest evidences for Christianity. That there is no certain personality profile that becomes a Christian. There's no like a version, the kind of person that follows Christ. There's just such a variety. It is truly the gospel. Jesse's life's transformed. His heart's changed. How did this happen? It's this grace of God. What an incredible message that is intellectually credible and yet existentially satisfying. Would you look to Christ? Do you have a desire? Have you come to the dead end of your life and realized, wow, religion, it's empty. It's all hypocrisy. It's, it's a treadmill-like existence that's pointless. Will you now turn to Christ and look to Him? Look away from your religion. Look away from your false righteousness, external deeds, and look to Christ. For those who are living irreligiously, living for self, living for your own pleasure, for your own gratification. Have you come to the dead end of, of, of your life and see the emptiness of living for yourself? At, at the end, you live for yourself. You're alone. There's no joy. There's no sweetness. You realize you're not worth living for. You're not worth living for. Would you consider looking away from yourself, looking away from the things that have promised you joy, have failed to deliver, and so disappointed in these things, will you now consider looking to Christ and hoping in Him? If you do, you will find that He's faithful to His promises, that He will save, He will transform, and He will be beautiful to you. God, we pray on this Resurrection Sunday that you would perform a work of resurrection in souls here this morning. That there are people here who are still dead in their trespass. Who are still living for religion, for their own works, their own boasting pride and, and uh, achievements. Or there are others who are living for themselves, living for their own lusts and pleasures. In your sight, they're equally dead. Lord, we pray to the Holy Spirit. Would you open their eyes? Would you give them life? Cause them to look to Christ. And they will, for the first time, see for themselves oh, the truth that is Christ and how beautiful He is. How He satisfies our deepest longings for forgiveness, for redemption, for reconciliation with you, to be in a right standing with God, to be adopted into your family, that is not by works, but that is through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.